May I see a show of hands for those of you who were at the church Christmas party this year? Very good, thank you. May I see a show of hands of those who remember the North Area Community Group's rendition of the 12 days of Christmas? Raise your hand. Perhaps you remember some of the more vivid verses. On the 12th day of Christmas, Redeemer gave to me a 12-foot floating Jesus. Ten clip cases dropping, that's sure to happen. Nine slow toilets flushing next door. On down to two parking boots. And then, of course, we all remember day one. On the first day of Christmas, Redeemer gave to me, do you remember? Never-ending Deuteronomy. Raise your hand if you laughed at that. Shame on you. (laughs) If I were a spiteful person, and I'm not, I would just say, fine then. We'll stop at Deuteronomy chapter 29, and I would deny you in this moment access to one of the most beautiful chapters in the entire book of Deuteronomy, and not just in the book of Deuteronomy, but the entirety of Scripture. Because though the details are different in this passage, it's a chapter that tells our life story, yours and mine, and it gives hope to that story. A truth, a chapter whose truth is absolutely amazing in the true sense of that word, amazing. So shall we hear this truth or shall we bring an end to a never-ending Deuteronomy? What say you? Let's hear it. Here's the truth. It is amazing truth. People will always sin and God will always forgive those who repent. That's amazing and that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to ask you to turn to the book of Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter. If you don't have a a Bible, there should be one there in the pew in front of you. And when you've found Deuteronomy chapter 30, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we can hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you, And you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I have commanded you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would bless this reading and Hearing of your word and the truth of it, Father, we pray that you would amaze us by it. And Father, in our amazement, we pray that through the power of your spirit, you would enable us to live by this amazing truth that we consider this morning. 
Change us, transform us. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. As we get into the passage this morning and look at verse 1, the first part of the verse actually serves as a review for us because it mentions the blessings and the cursings. If you were back, if you were here in the fall, we looked at chapters 27 and 28 extensively. And we even acted out, remember the Sunday when we acted out these verses, people on this side of the aisle stood and you pronounced the blessings to people on that side of the aisle. And then people on this side of the aisle, you stood and faced this way and you pronounced the the curses that were found here in Deuteronomy. Just as God commanded his people to do when they entered the promised land. He commanded that half of them stand on Mount Gerizim and shout out the blessings of God. He commanded the other half of the tribes of Israel to stand on Mount Ebal and shout out the curses of God that accompany disobedience. And so it was a really dramatic moment and a a vivid classroom participation type of exercise to impress on God's people the importance of living in obedience to the word of God, the importance of being faithful to the covenant they were entering with him. Blessing would come from obedience. But equally important to the Lord is the message that curses will come upon them if they do not live in obedience to the word of the Lord. If they are not faithful to the covenant promises they make to him. Now I say equally important, but actually the blessings and the cursings found in chapters 27 and 28 are not presented equally at all. If you flip back to chapter 28, you'll see there that only 12 verses in that chapter are designated for blessing. 53 verses are committed to recording the curses. So that's 18% blessing, 82% curses. If you go back to chapter 27, though God says that the blessing should be shouted from Mount Gerizim, they're not mentioned at all. Only 12 verses of curses are listed. And so I've just got to confess that this is uncomfortable for a person like me. And this is a case that if I were God, and thank God I'm not, but I would do things a lot differently. I always want the message to be positive. Been that way for a lot of years. When I was in college, I was first a business major for a couple of years before I was a religion major and before I was an English major, before I was an education major. Yes, (laughs) I had trouble making up my mind. Anyway, when I was a business major, I had a class called business communication. And I only remember one thing about that class. And it was this one exercise. And we were given a whole list of of signs, messages that were negative, that, that included the word no or don't. And we had to rewrite them into a positive message. And so the easy one was no smoking, you know, no smoking allowed. That was easy. You know, that became um, smoking permitted outside or enjoy your cigarette in the courtyard, something like that. But it turned me into a, a sign Nazi, truly, even around here. You know, not so long ago, someone in the church was frustrated when they stepped in something that was left behind in the courtyard. So immediately they put up a sign on the gate that said, no pets allowed. Well, I went and took that sign down 
and I replaced it with this sign, enjoy our garden and clean up after your pet. All right, pause the message. Sometimes people put nasty notes on cars illegally parked in our parking lot that read, if you park here again, your car will be towed. Well, I sneak over, I do this, and I take that sign off. And I put on a sign that says, if you are not a member or guest of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, please call this number to discuss parking. I also did this in the freezer. Somebody put a note on the freezer next door. It said, don't leave the ice trays empty. So I took that sign down and I said, please refill the ice trays so that those who come after you can enjoy a cool, refreshing drink as well. (laughs) That's what I do. That's the truth. But then after working through these chapters in Deuteronomy, I have to ask myself, why is the positive message always better than the negative? Why do we always have to rewrite the negative and make it positive? For me, I think it sounds more gracious. And I want to think, I want people to think of God as good and gracious because God is good and gracious, right? And the gospel is good news, right? But it isn't being gracious if people don't get the message. And sometimes the good news doesn't make any sense apart from the bad news to which it is contrasted. Sometimes people need to be told, don't. So watch out. It's a new day here at Redeemer. (laughs) And I'm certainly not trying to turn us into mean, rude, or angry people. And, And we can't assume anger in Moses' voice as he pronounces these curses. But we must recognize that the negative, the warning, is part of the way A gracious God deals with his people. And so that puts verse 1 before us today in a different perspective. When all the blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you. See, God is inspiring Moses in this moment with a vision for the future that only God sees with perfect clarity. Blessings will most certainly mark the lives of the people of Israel because there are times when they will be faithful and obedient. But curses will also come upon them because they will just as certainly and more often choose to live in disobedience to God despite God's lengthy and vivid warnings. Look again in verse 1. When all these curses... Blessings and curses I've said before you come upon you and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. And so I wonder what the people thought as they were standing here on the plains of Moab. They haven't even entered the promised land yet. And now Moses is talking about being dispersed from it. Perhaps they find it hard to believe in this moment that they would ever disobey to such an extent that they would actually be removed from the land and dispersed among other nations. Perhaps these people think, hey, we've learned our lesson. We rebelled against God once and we had to wander in the desert for 40 years because of it. Perhaps they think, we will never do that. That will never happen to us. We deceive ourselves that way, don't we? Some of us even have lists of things that we, oh, I will never do that until we do it. And so with this prediction of the future, God is giving his people another glimpse of 
the human heart and what it's capable of. And so we need to fast forward in history to see what was in the hearts of God's people, to see how changed these people became. People who had the very same word that the people of the plains of Moab had, same blessings, same curses, same word. The day came when they built altars to Baal and Asherah in the temple, the temple of the one and only true and living God. They built in God's house altars to the sun, moon, starry hosts, and all the powers of heaven. They built those idols in the temple. The priests sacrificed before the altars and the people worshiped before them. Listen to this. Living quarters for male and female shrine prostitutes were constructed in the temple. Hey, come work for us. We'll provide housing for you. In the temple of the Lord, the people of God consulted mediums and psychics. Households throughout the land of Judah had their own shelves full of their own idols before whom they would worship. Shocking, isn't it? At least it should be. We've just heard the story so many times we're accustomed to hearing it. But that's what these people became. So on January 15th, which is today, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he led his army into the city of Jerusalem. And they surrounded the city and they built siege ramps against its walls. And they kept Jerusalem under siege for two and a half years until July 18th. And the famine in the city was so severe that all of the food was entirely gone. And on August 14th of that year, the captain of the guard and an official of the Babylonian king arrived in Jerusalem. He burned down the temple of the Lord. He burned the royal palace and all the houses of Jerusalem. He destroyed all the important buildings in the city. Then they tore down the walls of Jerusalem on every side. Then they took as exiles the rest of the people who remained in the city. So the people of Judah were sent into exile from their land. Now, we had to take this little trip into the future to understand that even though this kind of mass scale rebellion against God won't happen for hundreds of years in the future, God knows about it in the present moment. And whether the people gathered on the plains of Moab can envision this sort of degradation, it's not the point. The point is that God can see it, and yet, and yet, the God who sees the rebellion, the God who sees the evil so vividly, does not abandon his people on the banks of the Jordan River. That is good news, because God's grace is greater than their sin in the present moment, and God's grace is greater than the sin that will be theirs in the future. And their sin is not going to thwart the plan of God to bless the world. And that's good news for us as well. God knows. God sees not only our present, but our future. Spoiler alert. Okay, you ready? Spoiler alert. Your future and my future, it's going to contain sin. Anybody shocked by that? 
I hope that we are not under the delusion that it will not. We are going to do things in our lives that God says don't do. We are going to leave undone things that God says this is what you should do in this world. And even when that future includes our doing things we never imagined that we would do, God's grace will be there for us in that future place. Just as God's grace will be with his people in exile. The exile itself is going to turn into the grace of God. Look again in verses 1 and 2. When all these blessings and, cur- blessings and curses come upon you, and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you, when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and all your soul, according to everything I've commanded you today, then these things will happen. And so that phrase, when you take to heart, and when you return to the Lord, it's the same Hebrew word in both instances. Some people translate it, when you call them to mind. Others translate it, when you lay them on your heart. Others translate it, when you return to your senses. But it doesn't matter because the idea is the same. When God's people are in exile, 900 miles from their home, where everything is unfamiliar to them, while they're living in the midst of a culture that they don't understand, while they're listening to a language that they can't understand, while they're observing these customs that make no sense to them, while they are weeping by the rivers of Babylon, as Scripture says that they did, when they remembered their own good land in that moment, they will remember the word of the Lord. Because it's all that's been left to them. Everything else has been taken from them, destroyed. They've been moved away from it. But when they call to mind the word of the Lord, they will realize that God is faithful and true and that everything God promised, he did. He blessed their obedience as he promised he would and he cursed their disobedience and rebellion as he promised he would. And when that moment comes for these exiles, when they can see the truth of God and his word with such clarity. And when they take that word of the Lord to heart and when they they come to their senses, they will return to the Lord, as verse two says, with all their heart and all their soul. And that is repentance. It's turning around. So where's the grace of God in this exile? See, their repentance required this vulnerable moment. Their repentance required God taking everything away from them. It required God removing them from their context and their surroundings that fed their pride and their disobedience. As long as they stayed in that place, they would continue in their sinful rebellion and not repent. How can we not think of the story that Jesus told about the prodigal son? While he was living at home with his father, a father whom Jesus describes as loving and compassionate and gracious, 
The son could not see the love and the grace and the compassion of his father. And neither could that prodigal son appreciate the riches that he enjoyed in his father's home. It was all so familiar to him. It's all he had ever known. But instead of loving his father for being kind and compassionate and gracious, the son despised the father. The son saw the father as an obstacle to all that he wanted. And what did he want? He wanted his father's money so that he could go live a life of independence and do the things that he wanted to do. And so he wished his father dead. And nothing would have changed the son's attitude toward his father as long as he stayed in that home. The father wasn't going to come, become more loving than he already was. And so what does the father do in the story? The son comes to him, says, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And so the father in that moment, instead of disinheriting the son, instead of kicking him out and rejecting him for his insulting rebellion, the father gives the son the money. And you know the story. A couple of days later, with money in hand, the son takes a journey where? Jesus says, to a far place. Far, far from home is where the prodigal went. And what happened to this son when he was far from home? You know this as well. He eventually found himself feeding pigs. And he became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. And so this is a vulnerable moment for this son. In this faraway land where he was removed from the familiarity of his home and its blessings and his father, when he was stripped of everything, in that moment, in that moment, the son came to his senses. In that moment, while he's sitting in pig slop, his father came to his mind. The character of his father came to his mind. The beauty and the bounty of his father's home came to his mind. And in that moment, the son repented of what he had done. And he went back home to his father and he said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Just make me a servant. That's repentance conceived in the pig pen. The father accepted the son's repentance, right? Because that's the kind of father he is. And he said, bring a rich robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Hey, go kill the fatted calf because we are going to celebrate. The son of mine who is lost, who is far away, has come home. See, our problem, yours or mine, is sometimes we can't or we won't extract ourselves from the situation, right? It's so familiar to us. It's so comfortable. And the familiarity of the situation feeds our sin, whatever that is. Pride, rebellion against God, and it allows us to continue in it. And so when we won't extricate ourselves, sometimes the Lord extricates us from it. And sometimes he does that so that in those moments of vulnerability, we can see with clarity that it's his grace. Grace to his people in exile allowing them to understand what they could not see in the comforts of their own home and their own land. Grace to the prodigal son and giving him clarity in the pig pen. Grace to you and grace to me when he removes us from that 
from which we will not remove ourselves. And it's grace with a purpose so that we can repent. So that we can return to the Lord. So that we can love the Lord with all our hearts and with all our souls. And look what the Lord does. Look what he does for repentant sinners. Look in verse 3. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from the nations where he scattered you. So you see, it is true. People will always sin and God will always forgive those who repent. Look in verse 4. Even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. So you see, it is true. People will sin and God will always forgive those who repent. Look in verse 5. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. So you see, it is true. People will always sin and God will always forgive those who repent. He forgave his repentant and rebellious people. He forgave the repentant and rebellious son. He forgives you and he forgives me. And God's grace, man, it isn't just passive. It's not as if he sits on the throne waiting for us to come to him. Look at verse four. This is great. Even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord will gather you and bring you back. Literally, the Lord will collect us like shells on the seashore. He'll pick us up and he'll fetch us home. The Lord gathers us. The Lord comes after us. Is that not the beauty of the incarnation? Jesus didn't stay enthroned in heaven. He got off his throne, picked up his flesh, put it on, left home, and came to earth, this far, far away place. And why did he come? To get us, right? You and me, that's good news, right? Even if you have been banished to the most distant land. So no matter where we might believe ourselves to be, the truth is there is no place where the Lord cannot reach us. No place. There is no place that the Lord is too good to come and get us. There's no place that the Lord is afraid to come and get us. There's no place that the the Lord is impotent to come and get us because he fears the powers of those around us. The Lord finds us, gathers us from the farthest places. And when the Lord comes to us, it's with a message of repentance. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth when he began his public ministry were these. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When God's people are in exile, they knew that they had no one to blame but themselves. Their situation is not the result of fate, bad luck. Man, we just got dealt a bad hand. Their exile is a result of their own choices. And there they can clearly see, we did it. We are here because of our own sinful choices. And it's really difficult to overestimate the release 
and the relief that can come to us when we are able to make an honest statement like this. It's difficult to overestimate the change that can come to us when we come to this realization. See, I believe that we exhaust ourselves playing the blame game, right? Everything in our life is someone else's fault. Someone else's fault. And we have to not only harbor resentments, but we have to fuel them. We have to keep them alive. We have to be creative in trying to blame other people for the situation in which we find ourselves. And I don't intend to make light of people, even here in this congregation, who have been victimized by other people's sin. Because you may have been. And we pray for people who've experienced those sorts of situations in their lives. Because other people's sin had consequences for you. However, the choice remains for us. What we will do with our lives and what, we, what decisions we will make. Because the victim is not required to victimize others. They choose to. The abused person is not required To abuse others in return, they choose to. The one who is lied to is not required to lie to other people. They choose to. And this realization is ground zero for God's people when they were in exile. And it must be ground zero for us as well. Because if they sit by the rivers of Babylon and try to blame someone else for their bad luck, If they insist on making a case for their innocence or for their victimization, the repentance that we read about in these verses will never be a possibility for them. But they don't do that. They do repent when they remember the word of the Lord. When they see the faithfulness of the Lord in doing everything that he promised he would do. And so it is for us, you and I. Repent. Of our sins. Why should we not? People will always sin. And God will always forgive those who repent. Right? That's the grace of God. So don't dwell in a far off place. You might be here this morning and you have never come to faith in Christ. You alone know the reasons for that. Maybe you've never heard the gospel. Maybe you don't believe the gospel. Maybe you believe the news of Jesus is just too good to be true. I don't know what that reason is. Maybe you think, well, I'm too far from the Lord. He he would never want me. My sin is too great. My sin is too habitual. No way, no way, no way. That's a lie. People will always sin. And God will always forgive those who repent. And if you're here this morning and you are a believer in Christ, don't dwell in a far off land. We do, don't we? Because of our sin, we isolate ourselves from the Lord. Oh, can't go there. My sin is too great. That is a lie. People will always sin, and God will always forgive those who repent and enable us by His grace to love Him again with all our heart and all our soul. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, it is not an overstatement to call these verses some of the most beautiful in all of Scripture. And Lord, it's true that it's the story of our lives as well. Because it's a story of sin, it's a story of rebellion, it's a story of pride and arrogance. As people go their own way and do their own thing, as people worship other gods, as people reject you as the one and only true and living God, it's the story of our lives, even, Lord, to this day. And so how beautiful it is for us to read that, that people who did what your people, people called by your name, did. Whether they could ever imagine doing it or not, they did it, Lord. And there were consequences for it. But Lord, their sin, grievous as it was, did not cause you to reject them. Instead, Lord, you acted in grace toward them. Father, you brought about by your grace. You just made it everything right and ripe for them to repent and to return and turn back to you. And Lord, that's what they did. And so it's a beautiful passage. Father, I pray that we would fast forward now to our lives right now in this moment where there are parallels in our lives with these people. Help us to see them, Lord. And help us to see with clarity your truth that we will always sin and that you will always forgive when we repent before you. So we thank you for that. And as we receive your welcome, like you welcome the son, come home. Thank you, Lord. We pray that because of that, we would love you with all our hearts and with all our souls. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.